It has been a long time since I've been in the book of Joshua actually to preach. Um, June 26th was my last time that I preached from the book of Joshua. <laughs> right, June 26th. So it probably feels like, what, what's the book of Joshua? <laughs> so let me pray, and I think I need to reorient us to this book before we can get into the section that we're going to look at today. Um, Pastor Matt is passing out a handout that I hope will be useful to you. Um, there's a place on the back for notes, but there's a map on the front, and um, I think that'll actually be useful for us. And uh, the color printer came in very handy today because when I printed it in black and white, it was very difficult to read. So um, thank you, Donnie, for getting us hooked up with a, a good new copier. Anybody else need a handout? Todd and those gentlemen on that side. Andrew, Andrew, Matt, and oh, you got it. Okay. All right. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you are our hope. You are our anchor for our soul. Your promises are sure. They are yes and amen in Christ. And every word you have spoken proves true. And we can trust in that. Pray this morning for this time as we look into your word that you would bless it, that you would help your people, myself especially, to understand and communicate clearly, but your people to hear and receive it and be encouraged by it in a passage that I think we would not normally spend a lot of time in. So God, I ask for your help that you would work today in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's pray. Bob and Judy Cassidy, um, her mom had pancreatic cancer, and I don't think they anticipated it going that fast. She just passed away. So, um, Andrew, would you pray for Bob and Judy and Kelly? What's their, well, they have another, they have a son too, but pray for the family. Her mother did have a make a profession of faith, seemed like a oh, godly yeah, woman. She so she's with Jesus. Yeah, she is with Jesus. Yeah, so that's that's encouraging. 
Okay, so we are in the book of Joshua, but if you have not been familiar with the book of Joshua, if you're not familiar with the book of Joshua, I want to start here in Exodus, actually. Exodus verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, uh, Moses uh, is being talked to <laughs> by God, by the Lord Yahweh. He says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Okay? We know that much Israel is in, was in Egypt as slaves. And here's what the book of Joshua is about, this next line. And God says, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God promised to bring his people to a land that is good. And by the way, that is the second time in the Pentateuch that the word tov, good, is used to describe land. Can you guess where the first time would have been? Genesis. Interesting. We'll bring that up later, possibly. The book of Joshua is really can be grouped into three sections. So the first five chapters talks about entering the land. There's really preparation for entering the land and spying it out. It's about entering the land. Chapters 6 through 12 is about taking the land. We saw Jericho. We saw failure with Achan. We saw Ai. We saw the sun be held still. It was amazing, right? 6 through 12 is taking the land. I did not preach on chapter 12. It is a list of kings that Moses conquered before they entered in the land. And then the last half is the kings that Joshua conquered. The message of how that would point us to Christ, though, is he is the king of kings above all kings. Then we get to chapters 13 through 19 in Joshua, and that is all about receiving the land. And we're going to look today at all seven of those chapters. So I hope you don't have lunch plans. Maybe we'll have it catered in. We're going to cover all seven chapters. Jo uh, Andrew says, no, you're not. You're going to highlight it. He's right. I am not going to read to you all seven chapters, especially because chapter 14 has 60-some verses. <laughs> but what I am going to do, and this is going to be a different format for me as a preacher and style, because as, as Matt has pointed out, I'm usually really logical, and I'm breaking down a text, and I have nice little alliterations. That ain't happening to me for me today. So I'm going to do three things. I'm going to highlight, go through highlights of these seven chapters. Then I'm going to talk about how those seven chapters lead us to Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about how does that help us today. Okay? Hope that helps where we're going. So as we go through these highlights, what I want you to do is watch for repeated words. So you have your handout. That is the map. Okay, and when I'm going, when I go through the highlights, you'll be able to see those different blobs have a big name of the tribe that it represents. That's when I hit each highlight. That's what you're talking about. It's talking about that section of the land and that tribe of Israel and what they got. But as I go through the highlights, if you don't have your text in front of you, I will have those highlights up on the overhead. So you're going to have to kind of look at your map, look at the overhead. I know this is going to be a lot of work today, all right? But watch for repeated words. I want to see what you think is the most repeated word as we get through it. 
Verses 1 through 7, though, of chapter 13 says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, <laughs> and there remains yet very much land to possess. Now, isn't that interesting? Because chapter 6 through 12, they had a lot of conquering, and God says, Nope, there's still more to do. Verse 6b uh, God says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land of Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. I kind of sets it up. I hope already in your mind, if you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, go, wait a second. I thought there were 12 tribes of Israel, not nine and a half. Right? You may be thinking that. I, you're right, because these are the 12 tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. All right? But verses 8 through 32 of chapter 13 actually go and talk about land that was already allotted to two and a half tribes already. So when it says at the end of verse 7 to the nine and a half tribes, the reason it says only nine and a half is because two and a half tribes have already received their land. And that's what verses 8 through 32 of chapter 13 show. So if we look at verse 8 of chapter 13, it says, With the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance which Moses gave them. Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. If you would put in your notes, Numbers 32, chapter 32 of Numbers, is the story of how in the world these two and a half tribes already have their land. And we actually covered this in the second half of Joshua chapter 1. Those two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of Manasseh, at that point promised that once Israel entered the land, they would come and fight for their brothers. But, so here though, it still just outlines in chapter 13 what those tribes got. So Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, chapter 13, verse 15, and Moses gave an inheritance to the tribe of the people of Reuben according to their clans. Verse 23, and it lists between those verses all the clans and the borders. Verse 23, and the border of the people of Reuben was the Jordan as a boundary. This was the inheritance of the people of Reuben according to their clans with their cities and villages. And then you get to Gad. You see, now you, if you're looking for this, this is all on the east side of Jordan. Up near the top, on the right, you're going to see that. Gad in chapter 13, verse 24, Moses gave an inheritance also to the tribe of Gad, to the people of Gad, according to their clans. Verse 28, this is the inheritance of the people of Gad, according to their clans, with their cities and villages. And what each of those sections do, we're not going to read through all the details, is it lists all the borders, describes in great detail all those borders that you actually see drawn out for you on that map. And then the second section of each of those lists all the cities they got in those sections. Next tribe at least half of it, the Manasseh tribe on the east half of the Jordan, chapter 13, verse 29, and Moses gave an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was allotted to the half-tribe of the people of Manasseh according to their clans. 
And then you get to the end of verse of chapter 13, and it says in verse 32, these are the inheritances that Moses, so we're not even up to do what Joshua's doing. He's just talking about what happened in Numbers 32. These are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. So that's chapter 13. So now let's move to chapter 14, and it has an introduction. Verse 1 of chapter 14 through 2, these are the inheritances that the people of Israel received, right? So, boom, what happened in Numbers 32? Now it's talking about what happens here in Joshua. That the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people. Actually, it should be Noon. I don't know why I mispronounced that, but of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Verse 2, their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. And then I think it's important to note verse 5, the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. I think that's important just to capture the obedience here that the people said, okay, we're supposed to do this. Let's do this. Then the, la- the rest of chapter 14 is a sidebar that I'm actually going to cover in a separate sermon. That is the story of Caleb. Caleb was one of the two spies. Joshua and Caleb, in, the old, in numbers, went and spied out the land. Caleb is talked about for the rest of verse four, chapter 14. I'm going to save that for another sermon, okay? So then the first tribe of the nine and a half tribes is now described starting in chapter 15. Look at that. We've already covered two chapters. Judah. Okay, so if you're looking on your map, that's going to be down near the bottom on the left side of the Jordan River, the west side, left side if you don't know your directions. <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 15, the allotment for the tribe of the people of Judah, according to their clans, reached southward to the boundary of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, at the farthest south. And then it outlines for a lot of verses, actually 19 verses, all those boundaries. Then verse 20, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Judah according to their clans. The cities belonging to the tribe of people of the people of Judah in the extreme south toward the boundary of Edom were Kabzeel, Adir, Jugger, and then it goes on and on for 42 verses listing cities. No joke, 42 verses of cities. So that's Judah. They receive their section. Now, this gets a little tricky. Chapter 16, starting at verse 4, we hear about the tribe of Joseph. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. Now, you may be like, okay, wait, what's Manasseh and Ephraim? Joseph, who was used by God to go through a lot of suffering, but then be raised up to power in Egypt during a time of famine and brought his father and brothers down and helped Egypt be immensely prosperous in the middle of suffering and famine, God used him mightily. And at the time of Joseph's, of Jacob's death, you can see this in Genesis 48, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And because of how God used Joseph, he gave him a double portion so that his son Manasseh and Ephraim get their own tribe in a sense, but at least section of the land of Israel. And um, in fact, Jacob adopted them to make them his sons. So that's why you see tribe of Joseph, but then it talks about Manasseh and Ephraim. Chapter 16, verse 5 starts with Ephraim's allotment first. It says, The territory of the people of Ephraim by their clans was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Horan. And then it lists the borders. Verse 8, chapter 16. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans. Now we're on to the second half of Manasseh. Remember, the first half was already received their land. They're on the east side of the Jordan. Now the rest of Manasseh, you see, they're on the west, the west side of the Jordan. Now we're already to chapter 17. Man, this is the fastest I've ever preached through passages. <laughs> chapter 17, verse 1, just the first part says, Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. What's interesting there is it says he was the firstborn of Joseph, and he was the firstborn, but it listed Ephraim first. And in that chapter, in Genesis 48, it's really neat because as Jacob's about to bless him, he wants to put his hands on Manasseh and Ephraim, but he does this like dance move and crosses his hands like this. And Joseph's like, Dad, Dad, no, 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 no. And Jacob's like, no, son, I know, I know. This is actually what God wants me to do. And he blessed Ephraim first, which is why you saw him in the text first. But that's just a side note. Um, Verse 3 of chapter 17 is super interesting. Okay? Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Mecher, son of Manasseh. So this guy named Zelophehad had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughter. And I had a friend in college whose name was one of these daughters. And he, uh, his, her dad named him because of this, her because of this. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirzah. They approached Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. These women, it's not just because they're hung, power hungry. They know that God has something for them. And they have no brothers. So by law, they didn't necessarily need to get land. It would have gone off to like their cousins. And they come to Moses and say, hey, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance too, along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus, and that brothers means like the Old Testament, they use the word brothers weird, right? You'll even see it here. Like, I thought he had no brothers. Their cousins, all of them down from Manasseh, are all called brothers to each other. Not like a Kentucky kind of thing. Um, chapter, verse 5, we're in chapter 17, verse 5. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance Along with his sons, the land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. Okay. 
we're already to chapter 18. And what we see in chapter 18 is a, a, a delay in their obedience. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 6 and 8 through 10 of chapter 18. I'm not going to put it on the slides because there's a lot here, but I need you to hear this. And in those days, there was, well, not the book of Judges. <laughs> Chapter 18, verse 1, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land laid subdued before them. Okay? The tent of meeting is where God would come down, the tabernacle, right? And then the uh, Shiloh was where at that point God wanted them to have the tabernacle and to worship. Where would you thought it would have been in the promised land. Jerusalem. Not yet. Okay? Um, not yet. But it's very interesting. There's worship going on right here. And another allusion back to Genesis chapter 1. The land laid subdued before them. The old, second time again that land is used with another word that we've seen from Genesis 1. What did he say to Adam? Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over. Same word, to have to subdue. Verse 2, chapter 18, There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So seven tribes still haven't got their, their land given to them. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe. I will send them out that they may go, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Okay, jump down to verse 8. So the men arose and went, and Joshua, so the, Joshua says, go map it out. Come back to me with descriptions, and we'll cast lots. Verse 8, so the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book of description of it by towns in seven divisions. And then they came to Joshua, the camp, to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned to the land, the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. It's important for you to hear those words, and we'll get to that, okay? Bear with me. Let's go to the next tribe. So then they've got the seven lots, and they're going to cast those lots based on those descriptions. Those, whoever gets that lot will then get that section of the land described by what these surveyors just went and did. Benjamin's lot first comes up. Chapter 18, verse 11, the lot of the tribe of, peop of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the ter territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. Verse 20. The Jordan forms its boundary on the eastern side. 
This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin according to their clans, boundary by boundary, all around. A bunch of cities are listed. Jump to verse 28, the last phrase of chapter 28. 14 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin according to its clans. Simeon is then now to chapter 19. Verse 1, the tribe of Simeon, the second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. So you, on your map, you see a bubble right in the middle of Judah, don't you? That's Simeon's section. Verse 8 of chapter 19, second half. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. Next tribe is Zebulun. Chapter 19, verse 10. The third lot came up for the people of Zebulun according to their clans and the territory of their inheritance reached as far as Sarid, Verse 16, this is the inheritance of the people of Zebulun, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. Issachar, verse 17 of chapter 19, the fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, according to their clans. This is the inheritance of the tribe of people of, uh, verse 23, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Issachar, according to their clans, the cities with their villages. Verse 24, we see the tribe of Asher. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the people of Asher according to their clans. Verse 31, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Asher according to their clans, these cities with their villages. Naphtali is in chapter, verse 32. The sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali for the people of Naphtali according to their clans. Verse 39, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Naphtali according to their clans, the cities with their villages. And now the last tribe, Dan. Verse 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans. Verse 48, this is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans, these cities with their villages. But we see another allotment given to Joshua, actually. He and Caleb, and I'm, I'll cover Caleb's in a separate sermon, but Joshua gets his own uh, uh, land allotment. Verse 39 of chapter 19, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to, the, to Joshua, the son of Nun, Verse 50, by command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath Sarah, in this hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. And then we get to a concluding verse of, the, of all these seven chapters. It says in verse 51, these are the inheritances that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, so they finished dividing the land. Whew, that's the fastest we ever went through seven chapters. Now let me ask you, Bible scholars, which tribe did I leave out? Levi. 
Good catch. I want you to see chapter 13, verse 14. Chapter 13, verse 14. To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance. As he said to him. And then you jump to chapter 18, verse 7. It says, the Levites have no portion among you, meaning land. For the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And you think about it. God is their portion. God is their portion. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Now we'll take on a, maybe a bigger picture for you. Because you just heard all these other lands, uh, all these other tribes received all these lands, but they didn't get any land. But hear what the psalmist says, Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is no, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion forever. In Psalm 142, verses 4 through 5, look to the right and see there's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. This is a lament. And he turns his thoughts, though. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. The psalmist has nothing on this earth, but he has the Lord. And that is all he needs. In Psalms 16, 5 through 6. And there's other psalms I could reference, but this one because Charity quotes this often, I think it's a good one. The Lord, they're all good ones. <laughs> the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me. Lines, right? Border lines. We just saw it. But it's not talking about land right here. The Lord is my portion. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. Friends, if you're in Christ, God has made us a kingdom of priests to him. And in one sense, our portion is the best portion, and that's Jesus himself, right? But can you say with this psalmist here in 73 that there's nothing on earth I desire except for you, Jesus? I know it's hard for me. I don't know about you, because I really like a lot of things, <laughs> and I, I struggle with desires, but that is, you know, when I think about it, when I consider the greatest truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died to bring me to God, then God truly is my greatest gift. But given all that detail of those seven chapters, I don't think that the only thing God wants us to pull from this as Christians is simply that Jesus is our portion like Levi. I don't think that's it. I mean, that's, that's there. That's nice. That's good. But that's not the main point, okay? Um, I've said many, many times as I've preached through Joshua, whenever you're reading the Old Testament, you have to look and see how does this point to Jesus? How does that seven chapters of detail that I would normally just go, yep, speed read, go to the end. So much detail. The only person I know that reads detail like that is sitting in the back of the room when it comes to contracts. He loves it. <laughs> he really does. But honestly, it, it's not something we usually like. But if you take time and step back 
And look and see. You will see this stuff matters. It really does, and it points us to Jesus. So I want us to look at, okay, how do these chapters lead us to Jesus? And in wrestling with this, which I have for many months, <laughs> um, and I've, I've thought about it often over the years, but haven't really taken time to dig in until the last few months. And I've, I've studied a lot, and most of that study is not even coming into this sermon. <laughs> but it helped me see it as I studied through this to see how do these seven chapters point us to Jesus. I saw two things. One of those things I'm going to save for probably the three-third sermon from now um, because the text actually calls it out directly. But today, I want to just focus on one of those other two things. Before I tell you what it is, I want to ask first the kids. I've already had a little bit of break. I I was tempted to ask the question earlier, but we'll see how well you retained. So children... What word did you hear repeated over and over and over? It was 42 times. I'm going to give Thane the first opportunity. Yes! Awesome. <laughs> Good job. 42 times. That's why I kept reading. You're probably like, why does he keep reading this? If a word is repeated over and over and over in any piece of literature, but especially in the Bible, That needs to be a big clue to you that you have found what the theme of that section of Scripture is. It's very easy for us to pick up on little things, and those are okay. Those are nuggets for us to encourage our hearts. But proper, good interpretation of the word in any literature is to look at the clues that are tying it all together. And inheritance is it, Thane. You nailed it. Look at Psalm 105 verse 8 through 11. In order for us to understand how these seven passages point us to Jesus, we're going to have to look backwards and we're going to have to look forwards in Scripture to pull it all together because the best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. All right? So, Psalm 105, 8 through 11 says, He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Why does the word inheritance get repeated 42 times? Because... According to this psalm, and hearkening back to earlier, it was promised to Abraham in a covenant, a covenant that Yahweh said would last forever. And this verse right here says that he swore to Isaac, Abraham's son, that he would keep that covenant. And then he confirmed it to Jacob as a law, a statute, that he would keep this promise He promised Israel, and it says Israel there. Israel is Jacob's name that God gave him later. That he would give him the land of Canaan as his promised a portion of his inheritance. This psalm is pointing right here. It's pointing all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 15. When you read Genesis 12 through 19, 17, 
you'll see God talking to Moses three different times, giving him this covenant. And it keeps getting more and more detailed. 12, 15, and then 19, 17. In chapter 15, you see God tell Abraham this specific promise to give him the land. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, this is before he renamed him, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river Euphrates. Where is the river Euphrates? Where? It's Iraq, actually. Tigris and Euphrates. Look at your map. Do you see the Euphrates River on your map? Look all the way to the right. Do you see it? It's not even there. But the border is supposed to go that far. When we read through... When we read through all those allotments, it doesn't describe it going that far. It's important. The river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. He promised him land that would stretch all the way from there. Some people argue that it goes all the way to the Nile. And some people argue that it goes all the way down to the bottom of Saudi Arabia that that is the promised land. As I read through the Old Testament this year again, the land borders and promises go wider than that. They keep growing. So hold on to that thought. He promised this to Abram, and it wasn't simply that God made that land promise in Exodus. Remember, I started off saying, how do we understand the book of of Joshua? we got to look at Exodus. And there... God was telling Moses, I'm going to give you this land. Well, that wasn't the first time. Moses was hearing a promise that he knew God had already given to Abraham. The inheritance of the land in those seven chapters are helping us to see, first of all, a partial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Because they took some of that, but they didn't take all of it. It was just a partial fulfillment. But the question before us is, okay, Paul, how does this point us to Christ, though? You haven't shown us that. And anytime we're trying to say, how does an Old Testament passage point us to Christ, there's a couple of different ways, right? One way is what we call a type. And a type is like a foreshadowing of sorts. It's more than foreshadowing, but for our purposes, it's essentially foreshadowing something that will come in the New Testament that has an anti-type. That doesn't mean against. It means kind of the opposite, the thing that it points to. Okay? And it can be a person, a place, or an institution. An anti-type or an anti-type. That's one way. It could be pointing to Christ, something like a type. A second way that the Old Testament can point us to Christ is by showing us how we need a Savior in some particular way. When we saw Achan steal and disobeyed God and was cursed, we saw in that the gospel in that our sins deserve the wrath of God. That's a way that it points to Christ towards the New Testament, okay? That's the second way. A third way is that it can simply be prophetic, like an actual prophecy about something exactly Christ will be or will do, right? So how did these seven chapters point us to Christ. The way that they point us to Christ is that Christ secured our inheritance. 
He secured our inheritance. Now, what I want to say, I'm going to say it a couple times. So for those that you are getting a note taken, you may want to capture this, okay? Because this summarizes what I think these seven chapters help us see. This passage shows us Christ as the greater Joshua who enables us to receive immediately a spiritual inheritance and in the future, the full physical inheritance of the land promised to Abraham. I'll say it again. This passage shows us that Christ is our greater Joshua who enables us to receive immediately a spiritual inheritance and in the future, and here's my controversial statement for some of you, that we will receive the full physical inheritance of the land promised to Abraham. When we think back to that covenant that was made to Abraham, did Abraham fully obey God so that he would receive those promises? Shake your heads now. Thank you. In fact, the Bible actually specifically calls that out, that he believed and then he obeyed, right? He trusted God to keep his promises. But what's interesting in the Abrahamic covenant, something I hadn't really noticed very well before, is that there is still obedience required in that covenant. In fact, God points out, because you obeyed, I will do this and this which is like a little bit of a head-scratcher because there's some unconditional and conditional nature to that, to that covenant. In that covenant, there needed to be someone who would fully obey, have perfect righteousness in order to secure that inheritance. God would uphold it because he had a plan. And he told us about that plan in Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And if you're using the King James, it says seed right there. It does not say and to seeds, to offspring, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That passage right there helps us see that Christ is the one to whom the promises were made ultimately as the son of Abraham. Isaac was the son of Abraham, but Christ is the one that was prophesied as the seed. And Christ is the seed of Abraham who lived perfectly in obedience to his father. He secured our inheritance. Now here's the next question. I'll ask the kids this question again. Who gets an inheritance? Who are the people that get inheritances? Thane? The firstborn in the Bible, yep. But just in general, if your dad died, your mom died, you guys would be the ones to get an inheritance. We know where he works. He, the inheritance, is in the family. Now, wills, you know, you get things through a will. That's not the same thing. An inheritance is what comes from the fathers and the mothers. The parents give inheritance to their children. 
That's the nature of the word. It can get complicated and maybe mean other things in different in language in general, but in general, what you mean by an inheritance is what you give your children, right? So let me ask you the next question. If children are the ones who receive inheritances, how do we receive an inheritance from God, especially because we're not born in Christ as children of God? Now, every human being is, in a sense, one sense a child of God and that he made them, but not that sense of what we're talking about. We have to be children of God in order to receive an inheritance. You can't get an inheritance if you're not in the family. Unless you're adopted. Romans 8, 15 through 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then Galatians 3, 26 through 29, again showing how we receive the inheritance is this way. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. In Christ Jesus, through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs. Heirs are the people who receive the inheritance according to promise. I've heard many people just spiritualize this, though. Okay, yep, and we're going to hit that because that's super important. But that's what we get right now. We can't minimize that Paul is saying, you are Abraham's offspring, according to promise, not by blood, at least naturally, but the blood of Christ, yes. You are adopted in Christ I believe um, this is that inheritance that Christ received from God through Abraham. And it's not simply just a spiritual inheritance. And I'll show you why. Look at what Rome Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4.13. For the promise to Abraham. I've read to you now multiple times the promise to Abraham. And his offspring would be that he'd inherit this little bit of land. This like, it goes from... Just, you know, that on your map, or maybe just Euphrates. Is that what it says? Heir of the world. The world. In other words, the land was not meant to be confined to just this little spot in the middle of the Middle East. Abraham would be the heir of the world, and Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And that error did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. This passage right here tells us that the, Abraham, that the inheritance that Abraham would receive was ultimately was not simply the land of Palestine, but the entire world. And I believe this is the direction you're going to see as you read from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Think about it. 
as you begin the book, you see Eden. And it's a place where God dwells with his people. And he blesses them. And he tells them to multiply and subdue the earth. And that helps us see that the garden wasn't meant to simply just be a bubble. Because it meant, it wasn't meant that it would just stay confined to right there between the Tigris and the Euphrates. But it would grow as image bearers would have children and spread. Right? But that failed. Specifically, Adam failed. But then you read from Genesis and you get to Noah. And you see that God is going to show another picture of what it might be to reestablish his kingdom with his people. In his place. What does he tell Noah? After he gets off the boat. Be fruitful and multiply. I'll be with you. Hmm. In this land. Hmm. He comes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what does he tell them? He says, I will bless you. I will multiply you. Same word from Genesis 1. And you will live in a land. And he will dwell there with them. It's the same formula as what he gave Adam. And then those same promises are reiterated to Moses. He says he'll bless the people. They'll multiply. They'll live in this land that's good. You're picking up hints of Genesis. And he'll dwell there with them. It's like a repeated theme that you need to keep your eye on. It's not an accident. Those same promises are reiterated to Joshua in chapter 1. And then you get to Kings, and it's given to David. He's going to give them, and it gets even bigger. Every time he gets it, it's like bigger. Like, whoa, wait, I thought it was this, and it's, no, it's this, and it's, it just keeps spreading. And what's interesting is every time you see this, starting with Genesis 3, then Noah, then Babel, then Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they fail every time. The covenants he gives them, they fail to obey. And when there's failure to obey, God withdraws his presence. In fact, it's called Ichabod, that God has left. But then what happens? Christmas. The real reason, right? The incarnation. Christ comes as the second Adam, and he never fails the test. Never fails the test. And what do we see that Christ accomplishes and brings us in the book of Revelation? A new heaven and a new earth. And through Christ, Abraham and you and I will inherit the world. A world without sin and suffering a world with perfect peace and justice. Now, here's an interesting question. What kind of person does an adopted child of God become over time? What does God do when he first adopts you and then starts, he changes you, right? He molds you and shapes you through trials and we become meek. More and more as he changes us and throws surgeries at us. And it changes our attitude. It changes our perspective. It helps us become dependent 
meek. What did Jesus say about the meek? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. So my question, I think you can see how this points to Jesus. This land allotment is a partial fulfillment of what God promised Abraham, but they lose it. But that, that shows, one, that we can't do it on our own. We need a Savior to secure the inheritance for us, right? We need a Savior who will fulfill all the requirements of the covenant perfectly for us. And that's what Jesus did. He secured the inheritance. So this is the question for us. How does it apply to my life today? As you have heard Pastor Matt say several times, there's this idea of an already not yet aspect that Christ has accomplished, right? So for instance, we know that already Christ is reigning at the right hand of the Father. But what we see around us sometimes doesn't feel like he's reigning, does it? It's just a mess, mess, mess everywhere. We know he is reigning. What we see is the not yet fully realized kingdom where there is perfect justice. That's an already not yet. So the same is true of our inheritance that we have, that Christ secured. We have first, right now, a spiritual inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise and glory of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, your salvation, and believed him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then look at this. If you've read this before, this is Paul picking up on the similarities between us and Israel. We were slaves. We were slaves to sin giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. What did he do? He delivered us like Israel out of bondage from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But there is a, an inheritance yet to be received. That's what we have right now. This inheritance is far greater than we can imagine. Peter tells the people, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What has he caused us to be born again to? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day, last time. What does it mean to be kept in heaven for you? I'm not exactly sure. But I do know that in the Apostle John's revelation of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, we see something very, very interesting. Revelation 21, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God having the glory of God. And then it goes on a few verses later. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of, his, of the sons of Israel were inscribed. It goes on a little bit further. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
I want you to see that because New Jerusalem is not simply that we're all Israel. It's not saying that. You have the walls that are the tribes of Israel, but the foundation is made up of the 12 apostles who were not all Jewish. Some were Gentile. That helps us to see that the people of God are what comprise the new Jerusalem. So how does this apply to us? I know we're running late on time. I want you to see just three things, why this really matters for you right now. First, I would say, if this doesn't give you hope, if you don't see hope beyond this present day when hearing about all of those passages, then I don't know what to tell you. Because your hope must be in a less than impressive Savior. If those verses that we saw, what Christ has done for us and what he's going to give to us makes you yawn, well, then you need to check your heart because I don't know that you are in Christ. So first of all, these promises should give you strength to have a long-range vision of what God has for us. A return to a greater Eden is coming, and we will be the ones to receive that inheritance. The second question, the second thing that I wanted to help you think, how does this apply? I know this was true for me, especially as a child, but it still sometimes hits me. Do you ever feel like the idea of heaven as merely a spiritual place with wisps of clouds floating around is not something that appeals to you? That's weird, right? And I'm glad that some of you are honest because I know the rest of you have probably thought the same thing. I want you to know that's not a wrong feeling. In fact, that kind of weird notion of heaven is more rooted in a false teaching called Gnosticism than it is in a real biblical vision of heaven and earth. The place where Adam and Eve lived and dwelled with God was a real physical place. If we begin to think of heaven as ethereal, you're missing that Eden was a real place where God dwelt with his people and the place where Moses met with God on the real mountain and then in the real tabernacle was a real place and the place where Solomon prayed and dedicated the temple and God filled that temple with his glory was a real, physical, tangible place. And the place that's described over and over in the Old Testament prophets and then in Revelation 21 and 22 is a real, physical place. Yes, there is both a spiritual realm. We talked about it this morning. I think we'll somehow be able to go between that spiritual realm and the physical, but it is a real place. In that final day, we will be able to move between both and all along with Christ and our brothers and sisters. So this week, when you enjoy the good gifts of turkey and mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie by a fire with the sound of beautiful music and the laughter of family and friends, don't give thanks to God just for those present gifts, but believe and thank him for the fact that those are shadows of something real to come. Those are real. And they point to it's going to be even better than what you're going to enjoy this week, Lord willing. Third, do you ever wish 
that Jesus was just right here with you face to face. I mean, I want that so bad sometimes. I know I minimize his word when I think that way sometimes, but I want you to know that this part of us longing to be with him is that ache that God put in you. He did that. And it helps you see that he'll fill that someday. He will be with you. I don't know. This, oh boy, I'll do a mat. This means we step back. This is not the word of God. I feel like I'll be able to hug him someday. That causes us to long for that day. And we know that he has secured that inheritance so it's a guarantee because the Spirit is here to guarantee it. And you'll be able to be with him and see him as he is. Those promises made to Abraham that we see partially fulfilled in these seven chapters in Joshua are for a real place where God will dwell with his people. helps us long for that day when the full inheritance will be received with joy. I'll close with this picture. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Praise God, because sea always means chaos in the Bible. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God, we thank you and long for that day. We thank you that you have guaranteed our inheritance, and that that inheritance is something we can enjoy right now spiritually knowing that we have received all spiritual blessings in Christ. But we also know that there is a real physical time that you will dwell with us, your son Jesus. We will see him face to face and be with him without the chaos, without the suffering, without the pain. There will be perfect shalom. And we long for that day. We thank you for these pictures that show us that how much we need a Savior because we just can't do this on our own. We thank you that your son Jesus secured for us this perfect inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.